now. Okay, hello everyone. My name is Scott Shepard with the City's First podcast, your source for all issues related to urbanism, mobility, micromobility, as well as decarbonization. Today, we're really excited to have our fourth guest to our podcast for the November episode, episode four, and this is Peter Griffiths. Peter Griffiths helps people see and imagine cities differently. As an urban thought leader and city strategist, he most recently explored how the shared micromobility sector can transition from startup to critical infrastructure. Before this, he worked for the London School of Economics on the Future of Cities, supported by the World Bank's Global Platform for Sustainable Cities, and consulted to cities across the UK and Europe on maximizing investment and brand opportunities. So with this, I'd like to welcome Peter. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Really excited to have you here today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Lot to cover. A lot to cover in minimal time, but uh, things are really changing at a rapid pace, so I think this will be really timely for our audience and viewers here. So I think we'll just get it, this kicked off and started. So uh, I think the viewers and listeners know what our format as we go through a few questions, and it's kind of open-ended and freeform, and it's meant to be very conversational. Um, so our first question or topic we'd like to cover is, at a very high level, we'll start high and get a little deeper as we go through each question. So how has the micromobility market evolved since COVID? Let's look at a very high picture. We're still kind of in COVID. We're in late stages of the pandemic, but we obviously seen lots of learnings, lots of evolutions on the public and private sector. But what are some of the takeaways we see and how is this kind of recalibrating the micromobility sector? Yes, Scott, that is definitely a big question. All right. Maybe at the broadest, I would say, is it's changed how we consume mobility. And so if you consider before, let's say in a city like London or many other cities in the world, people would travel to work. It would take them an hour to get there and an hour back. And that travel would invariably have been on public transport. Now, if you have a circumstance where people are working hybrid or possibly fully remote, you free up a lot of those travel hours for other forms of mobility. And the question mark is where are those hours going to go? Some of them won't be allocated at all. Um, but at least some of them could be an opportunity for shared micromobility or other forms of mobility. And I suppose on the on the maybe the more negative side is we saw that car usage increased during the pandemic. And so you see that working there, too, in the sense of if people's travel consumption decreases in one mode, what are the other modes that are potentially going to take up the slack? Right. Yeah. Is it a zero sum game or is there a benefit that all can start to capturing this um, opportunity for uh, more active and sustainable modes. Certainly, we've seen a, a bit of cannibalization from one mode to the next. Um, public transport has been a, a bit of, I, I don't want to say a victim, but a bit of a, a weakened position, at least at first during the early stages of the pandemic. Although we're seeing quite a very interesting and positive ridership recovery across many different transport operators in mainland Europe, UK, and now finally in North America. But of course, the real opportunity back to micromobility is how can that uh, at least um, align with public policy uh, as many different uh, European regions and cities, certainly in mainland Europe, uh, in my recent travels to Milan, Italy, and reading, meeting with the regional council there, talking about an overall 30% uh, reduction in all personal car journeys. And they do not really necessarily care which modes will lead to that outcome, but that is their ultimate policy goal. So I think this opportunity is how can micromobility be part of that mix for long-term sustainable 
urban mobility planning, or as like we say in Europe, the SUMPs, the Sustainable Urban Mobility Plans. And how is this a post-COVID, um, you know, opportunity going to materialize? Yeah, I mean, I, intuitively, I would say that they should care, which mode it ends up going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe maybe taking a step back and just thinking about um, this isn't just a policy opportunity for cities. It's also an infrastructure and a rethinking how the city's put together and what the city's for and who it's for. And so I would say that that mobility, if you if you think about mobility in a very generic sense, you know, it's 30% of public space, 30% maybe of infrastructure spending, um, 30% of emissions. You know, it's a, it's a big part of built environment or city life. Uh, and so the question is to not just tackle it with policy, you know, not just this aim of let's shift X percent away from private car use, um, but also think about what the purpose of that is. And, and how can COVID, where we saw a number of cities with quite bold statements about building, let's say, segregated cycle infrastructure, uh, improving the quality of public realm more generally. Because um, if you're moving in any direction of active travel, if you're shrinking down movement, you've also got to shrink down the distances people have to travel. Yes. So you need to start thinking about a city that's more mixed use, um, a city where opportunities are more evenly spread, uh, which is possibly the bigger equity opportunity for people. You know, for and more localized, too, I would say. You know, local travel and, versus very long yeah. distance. So I think that's another aspect. Yeah, so I, I would say, but going back to the question about shifting to a different mode, um, I think it's really helpful to frame mobility in terms of the number of vehicles needed to move people. And whether that's a private car or a bicycle, it's still mm-hmm. in some ways a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so that still gives you a sense of how well the city performs in terms of its ability to redistribute skills and ideas and goods, um, how many vehicles you need to make the city work. Um, if you can shrink that all down, actually, that's possibly a, a more ambitious policy directive than simply shifting from one mode to another. Right. Good point. So we're not just looking at a, modal, a one-to-one modal shift with the same number of total vehicles moved across this, you know, collective universe, but maybe a shrinking or rethinking of modes across time and space because all of these types of travel patterns have uh, either permanently or significantly shifted uh, to a localized level, to a hybrid level, and to one that is uh, breaking the old uh, uh, post-Second World War, uh, you know, central business district suburban commuting paradigm or uh, high street suburban paradigm, whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the terminology doesn't matter, but it's really the same as really kind of breaking down that that du- dual peak commute and looking at these localized trips, which really lends itself to what I like to call is the polycentric city. So if you look at metropolitan London, if you look at metropolitan Los Angeles or any mega city that's broken down into a series of localized nodes, villages or neighborhoods and trying to attract, uh, you know, business pleasure, commercial activity at that scale, reducing vehicles and kilometers traveled, and then trying to retailer the the use of public space around that, that is really kind of a, a, a game changer in terms of how we're seeing this uh, shift in terms of urbanism and mobility post-COVID. I mean, obviously you have some thoughts on that too, but th- that's kind of what I'm seeing as well. No, I think that um, one of the options of, of dealing with cities where they're maybe too um, too centric, too centralized is yeah. you know polycentric model, and it does have it does provide opportunities for people um, that maybe a, a centralized model model doesn't. 
I mean, I, I suppose there's the question mark about competition, you know, and putting opportunities closer to people. But I would want to question whether, is there a way that we can deal with peak demand? Is there mm-hmm. a way that we can distribute that across the entire day? Because ultimately that's the, I mean, that that's the win. And whether your city is CBD or polycentric, you still mm-hmm. have the peak demand challenge where arguably you're not using your infrastructure very efficiently throughout the whole day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know if that problem is necessarily solvable, but I would say in some ways, um, having a mode that performs slightly differently, let's say like shared micromobility, creating another way to connect, possibly also creates different opportunities for connect across the time of the day. And so the question mark is how do you use a range of modes at the same time that you've got this big disruption where people are thinking differently about mobility to maybe drastically redistribute how people move in cities and the way they move. So a range of modes to meet peak demand across the entire scope of time and space in the day. You know, that's, that's, that's a great takeaway uh, that will kind of segue to the next question, but very well said and uh, basically drawing into the uh, variety of modes that are available, such as micro mobility and shared mobility to complete that, uh, that complete that puzzle. So it's re- really, really good, really good thoughts there. So kind of moving on to our next topic here um, is around hardware uh, in the micromobility or shared mobility space. So I want to get some of your thoughts on what are some of the biggest hardware tech innovations that we're seeing right now in the sector related to micromobility, bike share, scooter share, et cetera. Yeah, Scott, I I would say maybe the most fundamental change is just that they last longer. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're thinking about a step change, the scooters used to last a few months. Now they last several years. Um, so I would say from an innovation point of view, getting what was until not that long ago a personal device to operate at scale mm-hmm. is actually a, a fairly impressive achievement. Um, and I, I know that we want to get on later in this podcast to talk about some of the bells and whistles of tech. Um, but I would say fundamentally, that is what has unlocked the possibility for for everything else to be, to be a shared device you know? yeah, yeah, while they're only lasting a few months. Yeah, you're we're starting with 48 to 72 days maximum, and then they were just recycled or trashed. Yeah, I remember that. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. Yeah. 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 So um, in terms of some of the new innovations, so we talked about the baseline. So the form factors have a longer lifespan. So we're looking at roughly about uh, 24 months now, I think on the average, maybe more. We're starting to increase that uh, lifespan, uh, which is uh, reducing basically the unit economics. So it's starting to pencil out a bit better for the operators. But kind of getting back to maybe some of those bells and whistles that are aligned with, um, <laughs> you know, uh, many of the different um, policy and regulatory initiatives that are coming from municipalities and cities. What what do you think is kind of front and center right now? So I, I think it's worth fo- focusing on maybe three things, but. So the one is thinking about user experience. So how does this new mode integrate into how the city works and my experience of the city? Um, The second is thinking about uh, tech innovation more generally. So how is it that this mode is maybe doing things that other modes haven't been able to do as successfully or pushing the bar on issues of safety, issues of urban governance? What is this mode doing? And then I'd say the last one is how is this mode potentially useful for things maybe completely unrelated to urban mobility. 
So if you think about resilience, um, you know, you have batteries um, in, in e-scooters, you know, often they're not interoperable between e-scooters and e-bikes and even different operators. Um, and arguably cars, <laughs> yeah, but arguably cars, electric cars have an advantage over e-scooters because you can plug them back into the grid and you can make yeah. your city more resilient. And yeah. so the question mark is, you know, you've got all these batteries running around your city. Could they be more useful? So, you know, that question of resilience, how does having this extra mode, which arguably will cause some inconvenience, which is why we need the tech and urban management side, how does it also offer some benefits, you know, so that it's not just about transport. Um, but I, yeah, may, maybe just going back to the user experience question, Scott, and I think that this is a, a particularly interesting one because, you know, in many ways, scooters were bought and then there was some tech put on top of them. Mm-hmm. And there are not that many examples of a scooter that's being designed from the ground up as a kind of digital first device. You know, mm-hmm. th- we're seeing a retrofit. And so most of the operators are taking that approach. Yeah. There's, there's a few yeah. outliers, but most are, yeah, taking the retrofit. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that has an impact on the experience of, you know, how these e-scooters operate in space. You know, so from the point of, you know, accessing it on the street to how you park, how you park it, uh, the kind of data that you can extract from these devices. Um, and there was quite an interesting anecdote, which, I mean, again, anecdotes, you're always taking with a pinch of salt, but just talking about Europe coming into much more competition from Chinese auto manufacturers. And the reason was that many of them had spun out of tech startups. And so they were thinking of the tech first and then the car. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Europe often thinks of the vehicle first and then what well, we add some tech to it. Indeed. And I think that there is something of that dynamic that still needs to play out in um, kind of the tech maturity where the device and the tech and everything that sits on the stack is maybe all thought about together as part of a you know, slightly more holistic uh, user experience. Um, and I think that that might that might unlock some of the stickiness, you know, in the sense that there's a lot of churn in the market. There are lots of operators that are seeing maybe somebody's only using a scooter once or twice, which you can kind of see in the gap between unique rides and total rides. Mm-hmm. You know, so how, yeah. So I would say focusing on that UX is maybe the next next uh, next big step in terms of the making sure step. that, yeah, that e-scooters are yet to stay. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the more safety side, which I know, uh, yeah, again, congrats on your, your new appointment. Um, I think you. it's great. Um, and I think when it comes to you introducing a new piece of hardware into a city, there are going to be safety challenges. It doesn't matter what you do. Like when you when you add more movement or you add more use of space, there's a tension point. Um, and so there's the question mark of how do you manage it? And I think some of the work which you know your, your team is doing around Drover are thinking about, well, how can we manage that in a way that's maybe not invasive you know how can we be predictive how can we use the way that a rider is moving on a scooter to make interventions that are positive for the rider and for the environment i think is super interesting i must say and and proactive Um, i mean i i I think i do have some question marks though that follow from that um, in the sense that you know is it appropriate to penalize one mode over over other modes or should we Mm -hmm. be looking to roll out this kind of technology evenly across all modes you know if yeah, it is it, the future right why why yeah. is it not as much applied to personal vehicles and it, it begs the question of this double standard we're seeing why are we 
putting so much onus uh, on the part of the regulators towards micro mobility and share mobility, but personal cars are, are getting a pass basically. I mean, there's some recent articles that have been written about that, but um, yeah, I completely agree with your point on that. It's, 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 it's not uh, evenly regulated. Yeah. But also the expectation is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think as part of that, there's a broader conversation of, you know, what is, what is the consequence of shifting people from the sidewalk to the street? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does that do for adoption? What does that do for overall safety? Does the argument of safety shift from a pedestrian and an e-scooter to an e-scooter user and a car user? And how do we manage those optics in a, in a way that's productive? Because I, my sense is from a policy point of view and also from an industry point of view, there's been an enormous effort to say we can keep e-scooters off pavements or sidewalks. But there hasn't been a mature argument of, well, if we shift e-scooters onto streets, we might still have the same safety outcomes. You know, so it's there is a really interesting question there in terms of the long term. So I think these technologies definitely have a role to play, and they very much do illustrate what we can do with mobility if we want to. And in a sense, e-scooters are spearheading what's possible in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's about having the broader conversation of, well, how does the system work as a whole? And in the built environment. Well, yeah, exactly. And how can that uh, perhaps be used as a spearhead to um, improve public policy and uh, physical infrastructure, whether it's in the streets, improve bike lanes, et cetera, off the sidewalk, so that this is basically an impetus for uh, basically provisioning uh, active and shared modes that are a permanent part of the um the built environment like i said yeah, yeah. And, and there's got maybe just a, a final comment and this is this might lead into what you want to talk around around equity next but mm-hmm. i think you've got to consider the social side of this too you know we, we have a world that's having a tough time at the moment you know in terms of people living well with each other and living well with difference and living well with um yeah just challenges and so if we manage the urban environment too much do we frustrate some of that opportunity for people to socialize and figure out how to just get on with living together? And so there's, you know, there's definitely a role for technology, but then there's also the broader question of if you game urban management too much, do cities stop fulfilling that very important social function of just helping people live well together? Mm-hmm. Quality of life and who owns the public domain and for what, what purpose in the Commonwealth? So a lot of, a lot of uh, discussions around uh, Rousseau and the social contract. What is the role of uh, people and the state, people in the government? And how can the government and the state provide a better uh, environment for uh, residents in the city? So that's a lot of philosophical arguments there as well, too. Um, we can have a, a side discussion on that later. <laughs> More time on that. But um, let, let's talk about the equity uh, question for a moment. So I'll pose this to you now, which is that how can micromobility, shared mobility deliver on equity goals and policies? This is a topic that's laser focused in the U.S. and North America right now, but it's certainly uh, relevant to U.K. and mainland Europe, too. So just like to get your take on that. Yeah. So, I mean, f- first, the bad news, it, it can't, at least not on its own. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the point that we need to realize is that one mode on itself is not going to solve equity, but it does have a role to play. It's not a panacea. Um, of course not. No. Nope. Yeah, um, I would say at a global scale, though, what's really important to realize is that some operators are exiting markets. And if shared micromobility is part of the solution, well, 
we may well be seeing just as a consequence of the market that maybe we're taking a step backwards in terms of increasing equity in cities across the world. So, you know, that that's something to think about. Um, but I, I, I do think that there are some really interesting things when it comes to equity, just in terms of increasing choice and access to different vehicle types, um, perhaps using the data more intelligently to target certain parts of cities. So I think New York is a really interesting example where they very intentionally said, let's put the trial in a, maybe not in the city center, let's put it in a more, an area which generally doesn't have as much access to transport. In the Bronx, um, and, that's where one of the pilots the are in the city, in the Bronx, yeah, in South yeah. Bronx, I think, disadvantaged communities, of course. Um, yeah. So in a sense, there's this very real opportunity to think about, well, if we are going to put another layer of transport onto a city, where do we put it? And mm-hmm. do we use it as an extra layer or do we use it as a connector? And it's kind of this big question of, you know, is it last mile mm-hmm. or is it just last connection? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, Interesting. So I, I think shared micromobility and if we can get to using the data in a way that is actually shows how people want to consume mobility across a whole city, mm-hmm. it could play a really important role in closing some of those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, you know, if you think infrastructure can take years to bring online, even a bus can take months, you know, if you, even if you really, really want it. Mm-hmm. And so there's the question mark as to, well, does a smaller, smaller vehicle type like shared micromobility, does it fill that gap? And if it does, does it fulfill it for enough people in the city for it to be relevant? you know, in, in that area, because there'll be people who can't use it for whatever reason. Across uh, demographic profiles. Yes. You know, socioeconomic, yeah. et cetera. And having the data and the empirical evidence to kind of justify these, uh, you know, agile, let's say agile interventions in shared mobility in a, in a positive way. That's the opportunity or that's the desired state. Uh, that would be our hypothesis, but we need the data and the evidence to prove that out. So that needs to be analyzed by policymakers, regulators, as well as many other stakeholders across the uh, the spectrum, of course. So that would be the opportunity of equity, but uh, in and of itself, it is not a silver bullet, it's not a panacea, and um, it needs to be part of the mix, of course. So that's kind of the, the, the cliche across this uh, podcast and other episodes is part of the toolbox. Uh, I got to stop using that term so much, but it really, it, it makes sense because it's not any one mode or any offer in itself is the solution. It has to be part of a bigger picture, of course. That's what uh, Carol Schweiger and I talked about in the first episode in terms of microtransit, you know, DRT and how that fits in as part of the mix for a public transport. It can't be just one uh, on-demand offer uh, standalone unto itself, but it has to be complementary, fitting into a larger ecosystem. So we can think of micromobility uh, along the same lines. Um, let's see, we might have time for another question here. Really quickly, are operators beginning to see a path to profitability in micromobility, or are they not? And what would be the way to find that way to profitability? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Scott, given that there have been both layoffs and closures across the industry in you know recent months, I would say profitability continues to present a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that that goes without saying. I think the broader question is whether shared micromobility should be profitable. Yeah, right. Or who, who sh- or who should own it? Um, yeah. Is that, that the right question to even ask in the first place? <laughs> yeah, um, and so I, I think that in some ways we haven't haven't quite gotten to this to answer that question. You know, where does shared micromobility sit on a continuum between uh-huh. private and public transport? You know, is it closer to private? 
-hmm. I would say arguably when it's funded largely with VC money, yes, it is closer to private. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if it is something which is much more a franchise arrangement where the city is bankrolling it, well, then it's probably going to be closer to public. Yeah. And so this bigger question of ownership, I would say, is probably more important than profit. Um, although, you know, we can't really get away from the optics or, you know, the physics of these are companies that need to make money because of how they've been set up. Of course. Yeah, no, great, great point. And, and kind of uh, ironing out the role of the public and private sector and where these different shared offers uh, lie. Um, are they city funded or franchised or again, are they, uh, you know, fully um, private enterprises? So, yeah, I think and we'll see um, more interesting, uh, I would say, uh, kind of conclusions to that in the coming months. So we're, we're starting to see yeah. some interesting challenges as well as um, uh, mandates from cities, the directions they want to go on public tenders and how they want to structure their commercial offers. So, yeah, I think we'll, we'll have more clarity, hopefully soon, <laughs> sooner than later. Yeah. Or potentially uh, even crowdfunded. That's you another know, thing. Oh. There are other models that we're slowly starting to see in terms of how people are organizing mm -hmm. uh, micromobility as a, as a mode, you know, within yeah. their communities. So you might Probably, see. Yeah. <laughs> No, I was just going to say probably a little less on Sand Hill Road, Menlo Park, California, finance are funded, you know, in uh, uh, that that region of the world. But uh, there'll be other financing sources and we'll see a, a much uh, stronger role in the part of the public sector. That would be my own perspective going forward as well, too, though. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. OK, um, so maybe we'll just kind of segue into some closing thoughts. So let's get your take on where you see micro-mobility and shared mobility in the next, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, I think the future of micro-mobility and shared micro-mobility is a very interesting question. I would say in some instances, the model of having multiple operators in one city to drive competition might not be the model that ends up sticking mm -hmm. uh, in, in the sense that it's not necessarily the most profitable way. It's also not the way to make sure services are evenly distributed and you increase user like you had a good experience of using the service. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if in some instances we start seeing something a bit like mobile phones, which, you know, you go back a few decades and you see that they were all competing with each other and then roaming arrangements came in, which forced them to share infrastructure, um, you know, which may actually make the experience of using them in a city like London or possibly in Brussels where you've got many more operators than three, mm -hmm. just that much more pain-free. Um, so, you know, there's some question about infrastructure sharing and, you know, how quickly we get to that. Um, I think I would also say that the many of the operators have gone with a B2C kind of model. You know, they've really tried to target the consumer. Um, and I'm wondering if actually the brand becomes less important. Mm -hmm. and it, you know, as it shifts to more of a, a public offer or a more franchise offer and, just seeing some of the some of the new um, e-bike schemes and e-scooter schemes, actually the branding is almost invisible of some yep. of the big operators because they've been branded in the city, and so I, that may well change a lot of how these um, how these vendors, in a sense, go after riders because that's a big part of the challenge. How do you attract enough riders um, to make the service profitable with the number of vehicles you've got uh, and your overheads? So I, maybe maybe those are two. And maybe a third one we're, we're thinking about, Scott, is just if we're shrinking mobility, could we see something maybe smaller than the e-scooter? 
Um, there are really some examples of people playing with a mix between mobility and fashion. And so there is an interesting question mark is, is micromobility just a step towards shrinking the size of what it is that we used to move, not just physically, you know, in terms of the space we have to move, but also the amount of space that the vehicle takes up on our person. So you know, I, I've seen some interesting examples with shoes that also work as wow. um, mobile devices. This is taking that whole term that Horace Dado with Micromobility Industries talks about, the smartphone on wheels. I think that was his presentation at the Micromobility Europe conference a few years ago. So this is taking this to the next level, basically, what you're speaking to. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting but stuff. I, I would say, Scott, in the next 12 months, there is something which I think we will definitely see coming out of the sector. And this is a requirement for it to survive, in a sense, and to move from flexible startup to long-term piece of critical infrastructure. I think that that's, there are a lot of arguments around inclusion, around safety, around sustainability. And A, we need the data really to show that that's the case. Um, but we may also need a conversation that's broader than that as to what are the benefits of including this mode in the mix? Because mm. I think it is just another mode. And, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have to have e-scooters in the mix. I hope we do. They're quite fun. Um, but they need to be more than just being fun. They need to be a pragmatic response to a wider set of problems to people. Indeed. And the data and the evidence and the actual, uh, you know, learnings and observations will hopefully justify uh, its role as well as other modes um, to kind of solve these more sustainable challenges going forward. So let, let's let's hope that uh, those learnings will come out uh, in a positive outcome. Um, and then, you know, I guess finally, kind of we're talking about uh, closing thoughts because it's really, uh, we'll, we'll stay on this topic for a moment and then we'll kind of wrap it up here. But uh, I guess in terms of this 12 to 24 month, uh, you know, overview, it's interesting because some some things that I've noticed as well, too, are, of course, merger and acquisition, uh, consolidation, you know, on the commercial side, um, as well as, you know, uh, looking at, the role of the public sector uh, in terms of procuring and managing the tendering process. So going from open markets to closed markets, uh, fleet caps, uh, limited numbers of operators. This is just on the the, uh, scooter side, but it's interesting how that could potentially be operationalized in a long-term perspective beyond the trial or the pilot phase. So how these uh, services can uh, be procured as part of more of that uh, permanent infrastructure. So this comes back to what you were just saying in terms of having the learnings to justify that e-scooters and other modes are a positive benefit or positive outcome to cities. But I think how cities view um, uh, these services being procured, permitted, and regulated is all something that is um, further um, becoming scrutinized. But Let's hope uh, the maturity level continues across uh, different um, agencies and authorities so that um, there's more clarity in terms of how operators, startups, and other innovators can uh, participate in the ecosystem as well, too. So I'm hopeful that uh, this, this greater clarity as we move forward will be a positive outcome and we move away from the the wild west of micromobility circa 2018, 2017 to something that is a a bit more sane, shall we say? That's at least my hope. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I would say, Scott, we have moved. I would say there is still some wild west built into the system and that's partly, 
you know, how it's, how it's funded and how it's being set up. Um, but that said, I, I think that there are some potentially quite good things. And I, I think if you, if you watch cities, you'll see them. And so as, as cities are pushing much more for things like fixed parking, mm-hmm. which might see, might be a bit of an irritant to the sector, but what they're saying is we want you to be a long term. Yeah, they are actually they're giving, yeah, they're asking they're for giving, it. yeah, they're giving a stake in, you know, in the same way, it's quite difficult to remove private cars until you remove lots and lots of parking bays. By having a parking bay, even just painted on the ground, it's a signal that this is something that is legitimate to public space and should be here. This and is part so, of the charity we're talking about. It, that's a, that's yeah. a positive sign. Um, yep. And so in some ways, the way that the industry is funded at the moment does mean that actually there's a desire to put as little infrastructure in place, you know, to reach profitability. And that's, that's not a, you know, it's not a negative comment. It's simply a consequence of thinking about how can we operationalize something as quickly as possible, Yeah, which in some ways is a good thing because you get proof points more quickly. But then as you move from that to the slightly longer term, actually where cities are taking some ownership is incredibly positive because in a sense, cities are saying, yes, okay, we've, we've, experimented a lot now let's take this device a bit more seriously yep let's give it let's give it a place in the city Um, Mm -hmm. and so i think in some ways navigating that tension point is it's a really positive sign that cities are basically saying okay we've we've played a little bit now we're gonna try and see if we can do this in a a more mature and grown-up way yeah we're not we're now getting serious about it micro mobility is not going away but if it's going to last, we're going to do it the right way. And we need to have this discussion now and we need to accommodate it the right way. So I fully agree with you on that point. Okay. So I think we'll just uh, kind of wrap up this uh, really super interesting podcast here with uh, a little bit about yourself. Um, so for our audience and viewers, uh, where can we find you, you know, on social media, web and email or whatever channel that you use? <laughs> yeah. So a great place to find me is on LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, reasonably active and um until elon musk says otherwise also active on twitter you can find me there too that's me too yeah we'll see how long our accounts last there (laughs) um and then we'll be sure to uh, promote this episode and link and tag you as well too as well as all your contacts and everything so excellent well thank you so much peter this is really informative um very timely given my new role um at drover but as well as what's happening in the mobility mix with micromobility all this uh quite uh, interesting uh, disruption, shall we say the least, but I, I know when we get out of this on the other side, um, cities, citizens, and even operators are going to uh, really uh, realize the uh, benefits to how the uh, ecosystem and the sector is maturing. I think that's the, the key takeaway here, a term I like to use is maturity. We're kind of growing up. And if we grow up, we have to resolve these tensions, as you mentioned, and these issues so that this can be um, a fully-fledged mode that is uh, part of the um, urban environments long-term, not just experimental and not just, as we love to say in Silicon Valley, growth over profit. We have to get past that and think about how are these modes going to be there and how will they last? So thank you yeah. very much, Peter. This was really it's excellent conversation. It's a great pleasure, Scott. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. All right. And uh, for everyone here, um, you can uh, check us out on uh, the web uh, for Cities First podcast. 
as well as LinkedIn um, and Twitter and all other channels. And we'll have this episode uh, uploaded uh, momentarily. And then we're uh, looking forward to our next episode in middle of December. So thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate it. Bye. Okay.